Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The following podcast is not suitable for children and contains themes that some listeners may find upsetting. Participants' names have been changed to protect their identities. From Justice, Stories of Survival with Edwina Grosvenor. We have to understand trauma because we have to understand that feelings come from that trauma and then behaviours come from those feelings. We have to change the question from what's wrong with her to what's happened to her. It is our job, I believe, in the prison system and really as humans in general to provide those safe spaces to allow people to tell their stories. I have seen women who have just, if nothing else, they've just told their story and it's changed them unbelievably. Four women, four stories, four tales of trauma from outside and inside prison. There's no one safe in prison. For all my experience, particularly of my first sentence, there was no one safe. Like, so I didn't trust the prison officers because even just to go into the office, someone would see you go into the office. Um, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to keep my head down um, because my experience of, like, from childhood of being bullied is when you tell people it gets worse. You know, so you just kind of... I ended up getting myself put down the hospital wing... You know, and I saw some horrific, horrific stuff. This week, Claire's story. Childhood was kind of um, difficult. I was, so I was quite a, my, a lot of my early memories are gone because of trauma, actually. So kind of, I was quite a quiet, reserved child and I was sexually abused by my dad for about three years, um, from the age of... from the age of four to about six and a half, and um, you know it came to light when I, I told my mum. And my mum and dad had split up by that point, so I was like going to my dad's house, and and he lived very close to to where my mum lived. Um, you know, and so I was put into therapy very early on. You know, at that time, so we're talking like eighties, so. Um, 
there wasn't enough evidence to get a conviction for my dad and my dad always denied it but he wasn't allowed to see me unsupervised and from an early age like I loved my dad you know so what happened was I was honest about this thing and my dad was gone you know so like there was not only the trauma of the abuse but the the trauma of like now he's gone so from you probably felt that it was your fault right absolutely from like from as young as I can remember I remember thinking like I'm fundamentally bad like there's something really wrong with me um you know and I I know like it it just I shut down really shut down but was also quite um so I would attach to men from a very young age because I'd been sexualized so I I didn't really understand about boundaries that kind of stuff really struggled at school like I I grew up in a quite anxious environment my mum's quite controlling so she was a single parent doing her best she could to, to but we were below the poverty line that kind of stuff so um and I struggled in school like I liked I liked learning but just struggled with connections because my understanding of connections so my mum was off doing her thing to kind of bring money into the house so there wasn't really I have two much older siblings but there wasn't anyone else so it was kind of me my dad had gone by that point um you know so I didn't know how to connect unless it was sexually um, so I really struggled in schools um, and really wanted connection. And I remember just my early, not just my early, my whole life just being fearful. Like all the time I remember, um, and I can't remember my dad, he used to come to the house um, and try and get in and like make a fuss. I can't remember this. But from I remember from about the age of 10, I would be convinced that someone was breaking into the house. Like absolutely frozen because I believed that someone was coming into my mum's bedroom like a burglar or and and thinking something was happening to her and not being able to move like I was already so traumatized by that point and um you know still today now like if my house is dark I'll go in and check all the rooms and check under the beds and stuff like that years and years later um you know and I I went to secondary school and I, I just wanted to be friends with the school kids and just wasn't friends with the cool kids. And I grew up in a in an area of London where white was the ethnic minority. So when I went to secondary school, which was an all-girls school, um, I was bullied for being white. Mm. Kind of told that slavery was my fault. And, but it just reaffirmed that belief, really. And, um, you know, I my mum used to recreationally smoke um, cannabis every, like, now and then. And... Um, I would steal some of hers and, and give it to the other kids and smoke it with the other kids. And I, I never liked the feeling of cannabis, but I liked it better than reality. Like, it just... I don't know. It just meant I didn't hurt so much that people's views of me or how I felt about myself just... It just took the edge off, I think. And, um, you know, so... And I was back in... I became very angry, like, 12, 13... Um, because towards my mum for two reasons one because of the abuse and secondly my mum is a very she's a very reasonable woman and and like if I had a child now who was being bullied I would you know say the things she said to me but what I wanted is a mum who said to me you go out and hit them or I'll hit you that because I my mum just wasn't violent um so I didn't feel able to protect myself because I wasn't learning that um, and I started to become really violent towards my mum. And, um, 
yeah and, I, and my using escalated I became very um, promiscuous so I was a pregnant the first time at 15 and I didn't tell anyone like I, I couldn't tell my mum I couldn't you know and, and it, I just wanted connection like just someone just please love me um, I wanted to feel safe and I just didn't feel safe and um, so I finally told my mum when I was I don't know, like, just before the stage where you can't have an abortion anymore. So it was a two-stage abortion. Like, for a 15-year-old child, that is horrific, Mm -hmm. you know? And I remember the best thing about it was that my mum let me smoke a cigarette in front of her. Like, that was some kind of connection we had there. Um, You know, and I was was trying to sort myself out and, and kind of the one area where I felt safe and felt like I was good at anything was horses. So, like... My mum didn't have the money to get me a horse, but I loved the stable. So I would travel three buses as an 11, 12-year-old kid to go to the stables in East London to um, to muck out the horses to ride. You know, they'd give me free rides and stuff, and I was I was good. Um, you know, and I, and I wanted to have this career. I wanted to show jump for England. That's what I wanted to do, or event for England. Um, you know, and I felt safe there. And I went back into therapy because of my violence. And I remember my counsellor, I kept skipping school and I wouldn't go to therapy because therapy was during school time. So not only was I being bullied for being white, but now I'm crazy and they all know because I'm having to go to therapy three times a week during school time. And so I'd just go to the stables and um, my therapist found out and she was like, I'm going to tell your mum to like stop you going to the stables. And it was just like, I remember thinking... Like, I just can't trust these people. Like, anyone um, in authority, anyone who's supposed to care, forget it. Yeah. Like, they're just not going to. And you're going to try and take the one thing away from me. Um, so I just stopped going to therapy, actually. But I really tried to get my life together at about 15, 16. I was kind of recreationally taking drugs. Like, not um, not hard drugs or alcohol um some amphetamine that kind of stuff and it was more about connection and avoiding my reality than being an addict and um I had this job and I just couldn't hold it down you know I got speed psychosis one weekend and like put myself in really dangerous situations a bus driver had to take me home it was it was horrific um so I decided if I moved out of London because London is the problem uh, you know I'll go and get a job working in a racing yard and and I did that and it worked really well you know it worked really well I was really happy um I was, I was good at what I did and um I met this boy and I got pregnant you know and didn't tell him um how old were you at this point 17 when I got pregnant okay um, so two years after yeah the first pregnancy yeah um so I couldn't bear to tell my mum because I didn't want to see the disappointment reflected back in her face and and I knew if I'm really honest I knew I was pregnant way before we found out I was pregnant um but just like I was on a racing yard so I could just like not eat anything say I'm trying to make the weight that kind of stuff Mm. and I collapsed on the yard at like eight and a half stone I was six months pregnant and um and I'd got in contact with my with my gran on my dad's side and she got me in contact with my dad. Now, back then, I didn't remember anything from my childhood. Like, I knew that this thing had happened, but I didn't remember it. Mm. And I always had this thing, like, if I had a dad, you know, like that mythical creature, maybe that would make everything okay. So, kind of, I was on the phone to my dad, um, just phone contact, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Um, 
you know, and I, I was living where I was working also, so I'm 18, I, I'm living at the yard because the house comes with, you know, I don't really know how to take responsibility, but I'm holding down this job and I'm pregnant. Like, what am I going to do? Um, and, and at that point, I didn't want the kid. I was 18. Um, so he was kind of saying, oh, you know, you could keep it. Da, da, da. He said, you could come and live here. And even though I di- didn't remember anything, there was a, like, an internal clenching, like, if I ever had a child, you would be nowhere near it. Um, so anyway, he, he talked about me giving it up for adoption, the child, and um, I thought that was a good idea. And, um, you know, I kind of went through that pregnancy, had to tell my work, had to tell my mum. Um, my mum, I remember being like, I don't know, seven and a half months pregnant. My mum saying, I'm really glad your granddad's not alive to see you. He'd be so disappointed. And, um, and then I gave birth. And um, and I wanted to keep her. Like, I wanted to keep my child. Like, um, it was probably the thing that, like, because I remember ringing up my mum saying, Mum, I want to be able to, to keep this child. Like, please, I love her. Don't make me give her up. And um, she told me I was being selfish. And she told me, you know, and I get it. She was a single mum. She was like, you have no idea what it's like you know, raising a child as a single parent. So I gave up my daughter for adoption. And just from then, I just didn't care. Like, I'd had a cesarean, so I had six weeks off work. Tried to go back to work, just couldn't, just couldn't. Like, everything reminded me of relationship, of her, of uh, all of this stuff. And um, I decided that I'd go and meet my dad, because that's what you do. And I kind of, you know, my mum was a bad guy, my dad was a hero, um, I went to meet him and, and my dad was an addict so kind of I walked in into his house for the first time and you know there's a load of people there one's cutting up cocaine and I thought yeah I've arrived you know drugs no one's going to tell be disappointed in me and um, you know just it just escalated from there like and I remember having this dual process and so my dad was a heroin addict I didn't know that at the time and I got onto heroin, and so we used together. And I remember the first time we only had a little bit of heroin, and he said to me, um, he's like, we should put it in a pin, so in a needle, it'll last longer, and it'll go further. And I remember being really scared, because I'm like 19 at this point, I'm thinking, like, oh, what, what if I die? Or, And he was like, don't worry, you can trust me, I'm your dad. And internally, I had this real dual process. Um, like there was this small voice that went there's something really wrong with this picture like this man is your father and what he's doing he's, he's say, encouraging you to you know inject and on the other hand I wanted the heroin so I, I was just off and running then you know I used for the majority of my using with my dad it gave me safety like I've never experienced safety before recovery like it like it felt warm it felt safe it felt like nothing ever would matter again if I could just stay here in this state but then what started to happen and I'm like an emotionally underdeveloped 19 year old is my dad started grooming me again so like um and just stuff very covertly started abusing me in many different ways and I ended up sex working and like it was just horrific um but I hated myself that much and wanted the feeling from heroin that much that I just didn't care, you know, and I, and I got into, you know, really violent relationships with other men to get away from him and, 
you know, my first sentence was because, um, like, I'm not... I committed... I, I did shoplifting when I was, like, 11, and my mum took me to the police, and the police sergeant scared me. Like, of course, like, I'm an addict, so I'm deceptive, but I don't have that criminal mindset. Like, I wanted to play with ponies. That's mm. what I wanted to do. Like, mm. So I don't have an extensive criminal record. So my first um, criminal... Like, I, I had possession class A's I'm a drug addict so I would have that and um, so I was with this guy and he was horrifically violent and he would play mind games so like I got with him classic addict thing met him got with him within a few weeks I've moved in with him and then I can't get out Um, and we committed this robbery on this working men's club and um, like he had an extensive criminal history so like I didn't you know like but I was so scared of him, I was going to do whatever. You know, and I ended up in prison for 30 months, I think it was. And kind of, I don't know what it was about me then. Maybe it was like that my coping strategy is to become small and quite invisible. Like, I'm quite reserved anyway. Um, but that was exacerbated in prison. Um, I had a really difficult time, you know. So the women were horrible. <laughs> Um, you know, because it's like a dog eat dog, you know, and my experience of um, how to survive was not going to work in, in prison, which is to make my smell. The smaller you are in prison, the bigger the target, you know, and I'd, right. I'd, the payoff kind of in my addiction was to make myself as small as and invisible as possible, kind of to get through each day without getting hurt. Um, you know, so I was a target, hated prison, hated it, I hated um the regime I hated the fact that everyone would stand on the landings look at you you know you had to all come out and it was almost like all the women would open their doors and look to make sure everyone else is you know is out who's not out I hated the drama when people would kind of um women would feel it necessary to kind of jump on the suicide netting or climb up the bars because they're so distressed um it felt really claustrophobic. From Justice, you're listening to Stories of Survival with Edwina Grosvenor. Tales of trauma from outside and inside prison. Today, we're hearing Claire's story. So you were sentenced to prison, and what type of support did you get from any officers... You know, you said you're a reserved type of person. You wanted to keep your head down and get on with things. Mm. Who was there to support you in doing your sentence? Well, I mean, obviously there must have been staff. But I think, you know, the prison service is overstretched, um, you know. And if there's someone quietly getting on with their sentence that doesn't need anything, and then there's three people who are kicking off, the attention's going to be there. And it's like... You just don't say in prison, like it, like you know, there's no one safe in prison. For all my experience, particularly of my first sentence, there was no one safe. Like so, I didn't trust the prison officers because even just to go into the office, someone would see you go into the office. Um, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to keep my head down um, because my experience of like from childhood of being bullied is when you tell people, it gets worse. You know, so you just kind of... I ended up getting myself put down the hospital wing, you know, and I saw some horrific, 
horrific stuff. My mental health deteriorated so um, badly that like they got they got me into the prison psychiatrist who said I had schizophrenia. I don't I think I think I had trauma. That's what I had. I don't believe I I absolutely know I don't have schizophrenia. I had trauma and trauma responses um, and a negative self belief that would play itself out. Um, yeah, so they put me down on the hospital wing as a measure of support, actually, um, away from the wider population. And I saw really um, distressed women, you know, um, making dirty protests, you know, people stripped, like just dehumanisation, I think, like, you know, people left in cells with their own faeces because they've made their bed now they need to lie in it that kind it's of stuff. quite interesting that point because of course a lot of what we hear about um sort of within the regular media sort of circles and maybe it's because it is unpalatable um you know we hear a lot about how good things are mm-hmm. sometimes which is quite right there are a lot of good things going on mm-hmm. in women's prisons but it's interesting to hear you talking about people being stripped and dirty protests mm-hmm. and people being left without care because that's certainly something that I think selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN likes to be glossed over because it's difficult to talk about but one of the things that I did feel down there was safe because I wasn't targeted down there so kind of I made more of my symptoms if you like to get me kept Mm. down there and I'll I'll never forget like um there was I was in over Christmas and there was this girl and she'd gone out the day before Christmas Eve and this was a woman who um didn't have anywhere to go no no support that kind and felt comfortable in prison um, and she came back in the following day or the same day and she'd been put on the landing and a group of quite powerful girls believed that she had drugs on her. So what they did was they took her into a cell where they couldn't be seen, held her down and forcibly internally examined her because they didn't believe that she um, 
that she wasn't carrying drugs and hurt her physically. And that's why she was on the hospital wing. And I was like, stuff like that happens behind closed doors all of the time, you know, all of the time. And she was young. She was like, she was, so I was 21, 22 at that point. She was like younger than me, like 18 year old kid who like, we was in like a four dorm um, and it was just me and her. And she was so terrified of going back up onto the wing because she didn't want them to do a similar thing you know and that's the kind of stuff like you know and I got out of that sentence and I remember thinking I will never go back to prison again like never and um you know but I had an addiction by that point you know so I ended up in a bail hostel can score drugs really easily in a bail hostel hooked up with a woman who was in the next room you know was ordering you know crack and heroin the day I got out um managed to survive my license and um yeah just I went ended up going back to my dad's um yeah and just just using you know and it just it was just dark you know like I would try not to commit crime my my dad had a bit of money so kind of he he didn't look like an addict if that makes sense he's quite well spoken he's quite posh I think if he'd have gone to a dealer they wouldn't might have thought he was police right. so I could earn my money by kind of scoring for him and um, we ended up going to London I did a street robbery in Northamptonshire and I went on the run because I didn't want to go back to prison so I just I lived in a bin shed under the pavement in Earl's Court in London and um you know for a woman who is homeless who's all's money's going towards kind of drugs I was gonna say drugs and alcohol but alcohol wasn't my thing like I didn't have money to wash or you know like I'm a woman so once a month come the period you know that like I was thinking and um you know I didn't have a family like the best I had was my dad who I was using with and he was being abusive you know and I remember thinking like how did it end up here you know like this wasn't my plan like where's my string of eventers and why aren't I at badminton you know like how did it end up here and um anyway like one one bank holiday like I was I was sick like drug sick you know I needed drugs I couldn't get the drugs and um like I'd I'd done begging I'd done prostitution um and I remember thinking oh I can't do this anymore and ended up knocking on my grand's house and saying you better call the police because I'm done like I couldn't do it I was 26 by then and I felt about 80 like all the fight had gone out of me I didn't I didn't it's not I didn't want to live I just didn't have the energy I just couldn't do it like my existence was miserable and had been miserable for a long period of time and um you know I ended up going to prison and which was fine while I was detoxing and then they sentenced me and they said they gave me a two-year IPP which is an indeterminate sentence for public protection. Controversial sentence that's now been abolished. Yeah, yeah that I still have the life license for. Still have the life license for. So like I didn't have a lot of like experience of courts and stuff so when I went up against the to court for the street robbery um, what the judge said is This is, so these are two robberies, this constitutes a pattern. Um, And my solicitor had said, oh, you might get a six-year IPP. So I thought I'd done really well. I didn't know what an 
IPB sentence was. Um, so I never questioned it. I never appealed it. Until, like, I didn't really understand it until much later in my sentence. Um, you know, and they were giving them out really readily in the early days. Like, it was a new sentence. They were giving them out um, where they're not appropriate. And then what they found is kind of people can't get out because you're telling them they've got to do these courses, but the waiting list... Yeah, and there's still a backlog in the system yeah. today. What that means is I didn't have a release date like so not only have I gone back to the place that I feared the most like I'd rather have gone back to my dad's who was abusive than prison now I'm in prison and they're telling me you might never get out like I remember I like I can feel it that the door shutting and like me feeling so suffocated that like I might never get out of here and um and I made myself a promise, like, you've got to get out of here. And if you do, you've got to never come back. So when I got to this drug treatment wing, like, I couldn't even speak. Like, I couldn't look people in the eye because I thought that I would see their my own disgust reflected back in their eyes. Like, they didn't even need to say anything. I was so riddled in shame and self-hatred. Like, I would just shake. Like, I couldn't even say my name. Anyway, um... You know, so, but I, I wanted, I wanted to get out, and these people were kind. It was like a rehab in prison, and they did this group once, and it was about abuse. And I remember sitting there, and um, I felt like everyone could see what happened to me, and um, I wanted the world to swallow up and just eat me alive. And after the group, I sat down outside, and this woman um, came up to me, and she said, um, she said, I see you you know, and it's going to be okay. And she didn't mean like I see you sat there. She mean I, I see what has happened to you, um, you know, and it's going to be okay. And it was like, it was like someone gave me oxygen. Like, like maybe I can do this, you know, like, and I was so scared, but so desperate. Like, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't, like, I'm a kind natured gentle person like it's one of my greatest strengths um and i'd become like exactly the things i hated about this world and i, I wanted to be able to look myself in the eye again and and so i kind of that started my journey of recovery but you know that sentence yeah it still does ha hang over me you know after 10 years i can ask for it to be appealed like my probation officer has been trying to remove the supervision element of my of my license for the past three years, and and it has been turned down and turned down and turned down. Every time I go on holiday, I have to let my probation officer know where I'm going, where I'm going to be staying. You know, my probation officer is cool. Like all my probation officers is cool have been cool because, you know, I've changed my life around. You know, and, and kind of a lot of them have said, if you'd have committed the crime you'd committed today, then, like, you'd get a four-year sentence, maybe, you know, and it'd be done. How long have you been out of prison So now? I've been out of prison since 2010. Right. So, I, you know, I started my journey of recovery in 2008, so 10 years. I've been out of prison, yeah, since 2000, January the 22nd, 2010. Right, but every month you should appear before yeah. a probation officer yeah alongside clients who might be you know going to probation that kind of stuff you 
have obviously suffered sexual violence Mm -hmm. at a very early age and maybe throughout your life from what Mm -hmm. you were saying. How was it for you in prison being in such a male dominated world I mean I know the difference of walking into a male and female prison but actually even when you're in a female prison surrounded by the women you can still feel the fact that it's a masculine Mm -hmm. dominated place and that's just in the air and it's something that's difficult to describe so how was that for you having suffered sexual violence throughout your life to be in that sort of male Um, world it, it was tense um so kind of I don't think I was as aware of it on my first sentence because like I was on a lot of meds and stuff but like it was just unsafe but like a lot of this stuff was really highlighted on my last my second sentence you know and there were like girls who would or women who would talk about the guy from the gardens you know who was doing the garden maintenance and how they're you know giving sexual favours for alcohol or um, you'd hear about women who are in relationships with officers who at night would open the door and have sex with um, women inmates and like it felt like that like on some degree that we're a captive audience like I was never targeted I'm I'm quite lucky you know And, and a lot of the girls think women think that oh, well, because I'm getting alcohol or whatever in, you know, um, there's a payoff for that, so it Mm. feels somehow equal, but it's like these women are sitting ducks, you know, and I I remember being on, so I was on a wing, and there'd been this overhaul, like, that only um, senior officers could have keys at night, presumably because all of this stuff had been going on, and there was a, so there, apparently the senior officer was up on the main block, which was like 10 minutes walk away, five minutes maybe um and there was a self-harm who self-injured and she'd gone cut too deep and the senior officer couldn't get to her in time because she had to pass through one two three four gates you know and this woman died and the reason that safety procedure was in place was because people were abusing their males were abusing their power and having sex with female inmates and it like I just thought it's a real shame that that woman had to lose her life because only one set of keys are allowed you know by one senior officer I think it's a place where vulnerability is rife and where vulnerability is rife so is exploitation Mm. I I just think people are exploited so it's difficult you know and you can get into the element into the thinking that men are the problem Mm. and they're not equality is the problem Mm. Um, and I think you know men need to be treated as men with systems set up for men for healing for men whatever they are and the same for women Mm. you know I think women's prisons need to be designed from the ground up by women who have experienced trauma for women who are traumatised absolutely you know and and a real think tank focusing in on that because you know it's it's a different world and a different mindset and we know that women um, tend to internalise their violence Mm -hmm. that's why women self-harm self-mutilate we know that men tend to externalise their violence so they tend to lash out and Mm-hmm. punch people in the face whereas yeah. that's less common for women of course there's always yeah, you know the course. exception but we're generalizing women tend to internalize violence mm-hmm. and men tend to externalize it so I think that's really important when you were serving your sentence did you think much about the outside world and um the fact that you're in this kind of 
secretive inner world where none of us are really allowed to talk about anything. How much did the outside world come into your sort of consciousness? Day to day, you get so immersed in the culture, the routine, the regime. That's how it is. You kind of hold out for your name to be on the mail board to see if you've got like posts, that kind of stuff. But it almost just feels like there isn't an outside world if, if that makes sense um, and when the outside world penetrates like in visits in um, mail that kind of stuff it can uh, like it magnifies the the despair I guess you know like I remember um, my one of my oldest nieces and she must have been I don't know 18 months maybe not even that and she came to um, a, a visit and we were put in the family room because this young child and she um so she took her first steps in this room and you know and I went away feeling really sad that this child's first steps were in a prison you mm. know and that my family were living a life day to day that I was not a part of and I was living this life here that they had no idea, no concept. There's such a disconnect. Like, a lot of the systems in prison um, are set up just to disconnect, mm. you know. Don't think, do ne- do association, you know, get your breakfast mm. packs, next thing. Which is quite strange when all we ever talk about on the outside is resettlement. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the mind boggles. But yeah, they're so separate, like, outside and inside. It's, yeah. Like, just mad stuff. Oh, like... I'll never forget the cups. We had like blue or grey plastic cups, um, and you always ate with plastic knives and forks and a blue plastic plate. Like I'll never forget that stuff. Like, and I still now, like, I, loud noises really trigger me. Mm. So like, particularly because I'm quite focused. Um, like I found a lot of um, prison quite traumatizing. Like the noise I found really difficult the slamming of the doors like they make such a sound and like when they're doing roll check and people shouting like I'd been through domestic violence so you know I'm in my cell doing whatever and someone shouts outside my door roll check like I'm jumping you know like Mm. you know such so much of that stuff is not thought out exactly Um, and and I suppose that is the sort of to get to the crux of what working in a trauma-informed way is, is to yeah. take people's trauma into consideration. Yeah. So to say, why don't you think about not shouting? Why don't you yeah. think about not slamming the doors? Why don't mm. you think about how your behaviour as a staff member might impact yeah. and trigger these women back? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, it's safe to say that officers won't ever be able to stop triggering a woman back to a scary time. But actually what they are able to do now with this training that's being rolled across all the women's prisons is to have some exercises themselves that they can do with the women to de-escalate any violence that's about to occur because of whatever happened. Because so much of prison is about escalating the violence, you know, that's almost like what they're trained to do. Slam you down, put the cuffs on, get you down the block. But actually... Why not sit with that woman, do Mm -hmm. some breathing exercises, make her feel safe? But staff can only do that if they've received this training because they most certainly don't get it as new recruits. Yeah, they need to have the resourcing also. Now, I hear a lot about prisons being safe, but safety is like it's individual, you know. um, 
prisons were one of the most unsafe um, places for me. You know, and I've been through a lot. Um, it, you know, safety is individual. Um, you know, so what might feel really safe to someone else might feel really unsafe to me. You know, like being locked in a room because it's got really strong lock doesn't make it safe. You know, in fact, it, it made my internal world much more unsafe. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I hope you feel like you've been seen and heard because I know how important it is uh, and how difficult it is to talk about these things. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're most welcome. It's been a pleasure. Listening to Claire's story really makes me reflect on the power of the human spirit. Claire is someone who has suffered terrible physical, sexual, emotional abuse throughout most of her life. She's kicked a significant drug addiction, she's been homeless, and she has an indeterminate sentence for public protection, which is a sentence that has been abolished, which still hangs over her head today. And it's just so incredible when you think about what she's been through, what she's putting up with, and how she still strives every single day to lead a law-abiding life, free of drugs free of crime, and she's just a real inspiration. Next time, as we continue our series on women surviving trauma, Edwina meets Tina. Some of the things I saw around women uh, self-harming was horrific. I saw a woman burning her eyelids with matches. I saw a woman uh, cut her throat. The distress, that kind of has always stayed with me. I think about, even now, even now, I think about some of the women that I met in there. They shouldn't have been in there. Some things that women do, you can kind of understand it. Don't always excuse it. I mean, like, so the offences that I got uh, convicted for... There isn't no excuse, really. You know, I was acting out my anger on the world just because I was so mm. angry at losing my mum. That's Tina's story on the next Justice Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with One Small Thing. For more information, go to onesmallthing.org.uk. Look for justice and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Justice is an MIM production. For more information, go to madeinmanchester.tv. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.